Hey y'all, welcome to Shelf Life, a podcast where I, Nicole Barbosa, chat with some of the coolest people in publishing about the wonderful world of books. In each episode, my guest and I will chat all about their book, Real or Imaginary, and then place it on a shelf alongside other authors and books that inspire them. Great literature frozen in time. It's definitely one for all the bibliophiles. In today's episode, I have the great privilege of chatting with writer, screenwriter, and translator Saskia Vogel. Saskia's debut novel, Permission, which was published in March 2019 by Dialogue Books, is a fantastic story that explores so many important and interesting topics, desire, grief, sex, love, dominance, and pleasure. If I had to pick one word to summarize Permission, it would be dreamy, the same word that Oprah Magazine used. And who's going to disagree with Oprah Magazine? Permission follows Echo, a young actress in Los Angeles who is devastated after losing her father in a horrible accident. With an emotionally distant mother and no close friends, Echo searches for solace in Orly, a dominatrix who lives across the street. Orly and Echo form the most beautiful relationship, but it comes with strings. Orly has a roommate and houseboy named Piggy, who is very dedicated to Orly and his role in her life. The chapters alternate between Echo and Piggy's point of views, and Saskia does a brilliant job giving the reader all the beautiful details that we need and want to fall for Echo, Orly, and Piggy. In fact, the characters are one of my favorite things about Permission. The characters and that oh-so-sexy shower scene between Orly and Echo. I love, love, love this book, and I had the best time chatting with Saskia about her inspiration for Permission and her characters, why Los Angeles had to be the setting for the book, as well as what we need to do so we can finally erase the stigma around sexual fetishes. I really hope you enjoy this episode. I am so excited because I am here chatting with the loveliest of people, fellow American who has actually left America just like me, so we have that in common, but I am so excited to be talking to Saskia Vogel. How are you? How is everything? I'm good. Thank you. Uh, just trying to stay sane in these times. In these times. That's a very good way of saying it. So of course, we are talking about your phenomenal book, Permission, today. I'm so excited. Obviously, I'm a huge, huge Dialogue Books fan, as everyone knows. I barely talk about it at all, uh, how much I love <laughs> love the Dialogues books. Um, and I am so excited to talk to you about Permission, about um, you know this book that is part of the Dialogue Books family, as you are. And I just want to extend a huge, huge congratulations. It has been revered and reviewed lovingly in The Guardian and Oprah Magazine, and it's just been absolutely loved around the world. Uh, We can actually say that, which is so exciting. Um, And I just want to say congratulations on all that success. And I've attended one of the Dialogue Books Lounge events where you were chatting with Charmaine, and um, you were kind of talking about your book and how you got started with it. But I would love for you first to give a summary for people who haven't read it yet of what Permission is about. And then I would also love for you to talk about, because your book's been in the world for uh, over a year now, I would love for you to talk about how this beautiful book came to be out of your beautiful head. Thank you. Oh, gosh. What's really nice about doing this interview now is that it's been a while since the book came out. So I feel sort of like it's my first interview again. So the book, I, I like to think of it as a book about BDSM, love, loss, and desire, sort of set against the crumbling Los Angeles coastline. And it's a story about a Echo who's a sort of failed young actress. She sort of stumbles into acting by default, as I think one can sort of do 
in Los Angeles. But it's not really going anywhere anymore. She had a little lucky streak and now it's bad. And she goes home to celebrate Memorial Day with her parents. She and her dad take their usual walk along the cliffs. And I don't think it's much of a spoiler because it happens so soon in the book, but the dad disappears into the ocean, which sort of sets into motion a chain of events that I think leads her to coming closer to herself and her desires, including moving home, where she discovers across the street, she doesn't have her old neighbors anymore, but a new pair of people moved into town. And it happens to be Orly, a dominatrix, and her longest standing client, Piggy, who Orly has also, like, in this moment, asked him to come and sublet one of the rooms because she wants to set up her business in this other area and she needs a, a roommate to make ends meet. <laughs> oh, Piggy. We'll, we'll talk about him in a minute. He is a very interesting character. And I think it's fair to say that we haven't seen the likes of any of your characters really before. And I say that with the highest praise because it not only contributes to the uniqueness and the the specialness and the beauty of your book, but it really takes the reader by surprise. And even though you set up the book and you, you, you read the back of the book and it's, oh, a dominatrix or, you know, a, a, an actress and, and, you know, a tenant and stuff like that, and you start to learn little pieces, there are so many surprises, so many inviting, delightful surprises that, that I absolutely love. And I would really love for you to just touch on, as you've just given that great summary, where did this idea come from? I mean, how did it hatch from your brain? It came from, I suppose two places. One, it came from a question I had about living as a young woman in my 20s um, at home in Los Angeles. I had moved away for high school to Sweden and, and then moved back and had, I guess, that sense of like the city and all its quirks becoming new again, like nothing was sort of given. And so it, it I just suddenly looked at the place of my birth and my home and with this kind of fresh set of eyes. And I was left with a lot of questions about the patriarchy. I hadn't realized what an intensely sort of patriarchal culture, even a very liberal place can be. And yeah, and I, I was, God, it's, it's really silly. I moved back home in my 20s um, for a couple of reasons. But one of the sillier reasons was I thought, that the funnest place to be in the world when you can are of legal age to drink and can drive a car would be Los Angeles. And I, and I had a really, really good time and found myself often in these sort of like Hollywood settings in a very adjacent sort of way and noticed a very specific kind of economy of bodies and economy of like romance and flirtation that was traded a lot on like fame and favors and power a friend of mine recently moved to LA and is having exactly the same experience. She's like, it's just like it is in your book. Men sort of are like, oh, I have this opportunity for you. We should talk more. Um, and that's always sort of some, that's just something that's so often traded on. Meanwhile, partying still in Hollywood, but just in a slightly different corner, I ended up um, making really good friends with a group of people in the BDSM community. And in total contrast to, I guess, what was happening in like other bars and other social contexts, I found this world that seemed so respectful, so interested in boundaries, felt kind of the same way about gender and identity that I did, sort of fluid expressions, but sort of really enticed by the idea of like playing with norms and playing with like power dynamics and choosing how you wanted to be. I realized at that time that I, I really like to, even though maybe I'm, I'm quite a dominant person, what I really love is someone who takes charge in like certain, certain ways, like um, 
plans and just thinking about life in terms of how you relate to like a power matrix, I think was really illuminating. And I'd never felt quite so safe and comfortable in a setting as I had in this specific community. I know BDSM gets a lot of criticism in a lot of places for just like reproducing structures of violence. And I think that may well exist in other communities, but in this specific experience that I had with like these group of people and these clubs, it had a sort of utopian time. And so these two things, that world and the other world, I just had a lot of questions and I wanted to work them through in the through the character of Echo. That's really interesting because if you think about the, the juxtaposition of the BDSM community, as you were saying, that I think it's fair to say that a lot of people are not familiar with the ins and outs of that community. I feel like, especially with art and entertainment through your book, we're able to see a different side of that community and the invitingness and the rules and the control that exist within that world. Um, mm. and, and I was actually just thinking as you were saying, so obviously people who didn't grow up in LA or, or outside of LA, there's really that stereotypical view of what LA is. And, you know, everybody's binging on Selling Sunset at the moment. And it's one of those <laughs> things where people are like, oh my gosh, is LA really like that? And I was kind of thinking to myself, you know, the role-playing side of things it really fits with a community like LA, where a lot of people are going after that acting lifestyle where they're role-playing. Mm. So it kind of makes sense that it would cross right there in terms of people who enjoy that kind of role-playing acting side of things, mm. whether they're doing it for a job in Hollywood or whether they're doing it as part of their sexual exploration as well um, in that BDSM community. So I think that's that's really interesting when you think about what's at play in a place like LA where it, oh. it does kind of feel that way in terms of everybody's kind of role-playing for different stages in their life when they're in LA. That's a really interesting observation. I mean, it's also a city with like, you know, such a huge tradition of subculture. And in, in that particular moment, um, there was also, it was sort of, from what I understand, the first sort of like mainstreaming of BDSM nightlife. There was a nightlife producer called James Stone that like made sort of the most significant parties at the times. So it's always fun to look back and be like, was I part of a moment? I think I've always wanted to be part of a moment. When I look back, I was like, actually, yeah, from what I understand, now that I've like, especially when I was researching the book and like actually learning more about what it was that I was a, a part of, I realized, oh gosh, that was like a kind of like a watershed moment and representation of BDSM. And I think because it was such a nice experience, I don't know, I'm working on a book proposal about pornography at the moment, and I realize that my perspective tends to be very much from like, kind of like a utopian place. I mean, I know utopia, like no place, but um, I'm really interested in seeing the potential of things. Like if we can, obviously things can be really problematic, but if this community or if this idea or if this, you know, filmic genre could be, what could we get out of it that could be great? Like, what is its potential? Because I feel like there's, I think, enough focus on the negative aspects of things. And I really appreciate people who also look into a kind of, not overly optimistic future, but just like, are able to sort of see what good can be taken from certain things that are more difficult to look at. Does that make sense? Yeah. And on the surface, yeah. those things sometimes come with a negative reputation because they're not told through the lens often from that community. And that's what I also think is interesting as well. And that's what I really loved about your book is just how many dimensions and how many aspects of the idea and the concept of permission come through. So obviously your book is called Permission. And for me, that's quite a conflicting, complicated word, looking at the different aspects of permission that 
are interwoven and exist within your book. The idea that we give ourselves permission to to be ourselves, to enter unknown communities and unknown worlds, to really give into that curiosity that is peaked whenever we enter those unknown worlds and, and kind of the unfamiliar, and also just the permission to love others, sometimes perhaps more than we love ourselves and, and whether that's okay with us in terms of how we feel. And I would really love to know when you were doing your writing, when you were doing your research, when you approached it, what did you give yourself permission to do, permission to write, permission to explore, and permission to create? Oh, I think the biggest thing I gave myself was just the permission to write the book. And I mean, I suppose this is more of a practical writing question, but I had done my darndest to save up so I could uh, take a little bit of time off to, to just focus on the writing and to take that kind of leap to just prioritize that was terrifying. One of my sisters studied ballet for a while and one of my sisters was an actress for a while, but I think I'm the only one who's still pursuing the arts in my family. And it's a very business-oriented family. <laughs> so I, I think I have a lot of fears because I think my my fundamental and probably most people's idea of like what a life should look like is having a, a substantial job in which you climb in a very predictable sort of way because there's a structure in place. And um, I was so scared to just take a leap and like value myself and believe in myself enough to actually just write the book. I think that's the biggest thing. And I can imagine that during multiple times during the process that it was quite daunting and you probably had to keep giving yourself permission to to take your time with it and to, to ease into it, that it wasn't going to be just a quick and fast process by any means. I agonized a lot over it. I really, really did. I agonized about representation. I agonized about, is this good enough? There was a lot of agonizing. It was a constant kind of recommitment. And what really helped me, I think, it was the external validation of having um, an agent come on board with, I think there were like 50 to 75 pages written. And she had known somebody I was working for had recommended that she take a look at my work. So knowing that there was this person and like actually believed in it made me feel like I wasn't just writing some silly sex book, that what I was writing really had some value. Let's talk about Echo. So I obviously, I was like, okay, so she's an actress in LA. That makes total sense. For those who haven't read the book, as you explained, she is, I would say, I wouldn't say she's unhappy. I would say that she, even before she loses her dad in the worst way, I would say she's kind of, she's kind of searching. She's kind of like looking out for that, for that next thing, kind of trying to figure out her next move. But she suffered this horrible family tragedy. She is by, in my opinion, all accounts, uh, lost from a personal perspective, from an emotional perspective. She hasn't got the best relationship with her mom. And it's really interesting the fact that a lot of times, and this again is is a cliche, but a lot of times characters will cling to what they know. And in the absence of having a strong relationship with her mother, she, again, in my opinion, um, seeks answers and seeks comfort in the unknown. And I want to read a line that I love in this book. So some days I made sure to leave the house when schools let out, and I take the road that always got clogged with moms and minivans so I could sit in traffic the sun in my face, the radio on, and wait for a flash of how things used to be. I don't know why that struck me, but it just struck me as something both sad and also very freeing. Because in the sense that it's sad that she feels like she wants to be around normality, and that's her idea of what normality is, but I also found it quite freeing in the sense that 
she's giving herself that kind of part of the day to just be and just be with that and anything that comes with it. It's, it's quite a spontaneous thing, I think, but also very calculated. And that's how I kind of found Echo. I found her to be quite calculated in terms of her next move and what she was thinking she might do, but also I found her to be quite spontaneous. And And I would really love for you to talk about what you really wanted for Echo, what you were maybe perhaps unsure of when you wrote her story, wrote her path, um, but also like how you approached her. I would love to know more about that character development. I mean, she is the sort of embodiment of, of those questions that I had. So she was the character that I had the hardest time getting my head around. Um, I think one of the big things that Charmaine and I, and it, the book was also edited by Alana Wilcox from Coach House Books, which did my North American edition. I think I kept a lot of her stuff internal. And I was like, but she's talking the whole time. Doesn't everybody know exactly what she's feeling? And they're like, no. <laughs> so I kind of, I really had to figure out how to shape her in a way that was much more tangible rather than, I guess, intangible to the reader. And sometimes I think I've developed this tiny theory about being withholding. Because I feel like I was quite withholding around Orly and people really respond to her and there were like no notes on Orly, except like, can we see just a tiny bit more, like one more interaction, which ended up being the scene between Orly and Piggy when they're just on their own and talking about Echo. And on one hand, I think maybe I gave so much about Echo. There was too much and people wanted more. Because I think the more you give about a character, kind of the more people want, like the more work you have to do, I think, to justify things about them. I really wanted her to have a happy ending. You know, I think you're picking up on this sort of like really intense and sometimes exquisite melancholy in Los Angeles. Like you think of it as or people sometimes think of it as like super sunny and blah, blah, blah. But I find like the way the city is structured, like the way you move through the city, like like there she is in traffic, surrounded by people in cars, so close, but and yet so far, you know, like it's very easy to not connect people are frantically like trying to network or socialize or whatever their way to the top and when they get to the top they isolate in like mansions up in hills I'm excited by that but also I think it creates a really exquisite intense form of loneliness like it's really easy if you catch a good wave in LA it's fantastic but you can just as well like fall off your surfboard says the girl who's only been surfing twice (laughs) (laughs) how so un-Californian of you geez I mean come on (laughs) I am I think that is so true I think there are, are certain people who crave that city life And I'm not one of them. So I actually, when I was down in London for five years working, I actually found it ironic exactly to your point that a city of so many people, I found it to be so lonely, which is why I find Orly such a breath of fresh air. I could have said breast of fresh air. That would have been probably more more better. I'm going to say it, breast of fresh air. I found her a breast of fresh air because she's our neighborhood dominatrix. And who doesn't want a, a neighbor who's a dominatrix who lives across the road? And she has a lodger, a very devoted lodger named Piggy. And I actually found it quite funny and I was wondering again I'm going to do a question within a question calling him piggy were you playing into the feeling of gluttony and feeling like you had to be quite gluttonous with your love and your pleasure that's nice uh this little piggy <laughs> went to the market I was thinking about his <laughs> and picked up a dominatrix I mean as one does <laughs> Okay, again, I might have seen too much into that, but he... No, he, it's yeah. great. It's great. Other people's interpretations of my book are are my favorite, because I, I think, to know, I, you get so in your head about the book that you write, 
and it's so many things, including the failings and all the chapters that you that I wrote that didn't make it in. Like, there's so much that exists that sometimes lots of things, infinite things, haven't occurred to me about what the book actually is. It's just really interesting because we hear from Piggy from his perspective and then we hear from Echo's perspective and it doesn't take long to see how much Piggy idolizes Orly and kind of that subservient role that he plays and he does it with pride. I mean, there is a section in the book later on where he talks about wanting to be in a cage of lust um, and wanting her to have the key to unlock, you know, all of that lust that he wants and it's just fascinating and he really sees his self-worth in pleasing her and it's more than just a character in a book, Piggy is more than that character. He, for me, and again, going quite deep, represents that quest for sexual exploration, how we cater to others, how we sacrifice our own pleasure to please someone else, the links that will go to please someone else and to be pleasured. And I would really just love for you to chat about this in terms of this sexual exploration and what it means to really find pleasure. Sure. Piggy is, I think, secretly my favorite character in the book. It was really important for me for this book not to just be about, I guess, female sexual exploration, but also to have the male perspective in there. One of the things that I think about the book is that it's a book that's also about how the patriarchy fails us all. So here's a man who falls outside of a kind of heteronormative sexual norm. You know, he's a guy who grew up during the sexual revolution and felt like he missed out on it because the kind of sex that seemed to be on offer was not the kind of sex he wanted. And he didn't have a roadmap. And so I guess later in life, he found his roadmap in his community. And Orly was a huge part of that, if not sort of the door that opened and showed him the way. And what I like about his character is that it's very much about his desire for Orly and the way it's expressed is very much through like the erotics of service. He really gets off on pleasing her and tending to her. And she accepts his care. And in contrast to what Echo is, for example, going through with her mother, a woman who like refuses to be cared for and is just sort of like this wall, Piggy becomes sort of like a, a counterpoint. What a beautiful thing it is in a sexual context or in a parental love context to be in or with a friend, to be with somebody who can actually like be receptive and who wants to receive what you're giving them. It's something that I don't think people think about a lot, like how we engage with each other in terms of care. And I guess like the central question of the novel for me was, how do I want to be loved? Yeah, Piggy very much knows how he wants to give and receive love. I want to talk about, and I actually asked this question in your live chat with Charmaine, but I, I would love to talk about it again. So I actually don't like this word, but I'm going to use it because I want to make a point. The term fetish, it's really labeled, I mean, all you have to do is Google like sexual fetishes, or even when people put the word weird in front of sexual fetishes, it starts to really sensationalize and to put a abnormal label on what a fetish actually is. And again, it's so subjective. I really feel that people should feel comfortable to embrace these desires that they have, giving yourself permission to explore. I would really love to know how you feel, especially as I feel like it's a great step with your book, how we can change the conversation and maybe the conversations we should be having that destigmatizes the abnormal sexual fetishes. I mean, that's a really hard question. I guess easier for me to answer maybe specifically with an example. There was that show on Netflix called Bonding. 
which was totally set up to be a show that I was going to love. It's about two friends. One is like a great dominatrix in New York and the other one, male best friend who comes on board as her assistant. Not so dissimilar to permission. However, unfortunately, I felt like in the execution of representing the fetishes of clients, in this one particular episode I'm thinking of, they really took a cheap shot in terms of where the humor in the situation would come from. You know, it was like, ha ha, this is funny because this person has this weird fetish. There's so many things that are funny and weird and absurd in a dominatrix client session that the fact that the guy has a funny fetish is like quite low hanging fruit in terms of where you can find your humor. And I think like in that sense, so I'm going to sound like a kindergarten teacher, but like, how would you feel if you had that fetish? <laughs> you know, how would you feel if you saw that? And that's how you were being represented. And on a very basic level, I think just treating things with a little bit more respect. And I'm using a funny example. There is so much more humor to be found in that situation than lol. You have a funny fetish. That's kind of, that's, I think, a really big part of it. That's really interesting because if you think about it, on so many levels, we find humor when we're uncomfortable, and we use that as a defense mechanism when something makes us uncomfortable. So it seems like the natural way to make it less uncomfortable is to put a, a funny spin on it. I think that perhaps because of the way that you approach it with such honesty and such realness, it makes the sex scenes so much more intense and enjoyable to read and to experience. And I remember reading permission and messaging you and literally, I think I probably just sent you like five fire flame emojis because I had just read <laughs> the shower scene between Orly and Echo. And I was just like, this literally has it all. It is sexy, the symbolism behind what Echo is experiencing for the first time, the joy that you get and the fact that they're coming together even though you know they will come together. I would really love for you to read this shower scene. Okay, so we're starting in the middle of the scene. Echo has obviously met Orly before, but Orly's just kind of played a knight in shining armor and has Echo got stranded at the Hollywood and Highland shopping mall and um, Orly came to pick her up. And so they've driven home and they're back at the crumbling coastline. Echo's just had a shower and then they're in Orly's bedroom. So here we are in the middle. This isn't going to work if you're afraid to look at me, Orly said. Her eyes were kind. I want you, she said. I'm on my period, I said. I don't mind. With one finger, she unfastened my towel and let it drop. My hair was dripping wet. She watched a droplet roll down my torso and then erased its path with her thumb. I sucked it. She held me close. I stiffened. She held me tighter and murmured, don't move a muscle. She let me go. I breathed in sips until I seemed not to be breathing at all. I stood still. She dragged her thumbnail down my chest where the drops were falling, leaving marks, white from the pressure, then red lines that faded slowly. She commented on how they shifted and changed, paying close attention. She studied the effect of her actions, refining them until I was no longer cold, from jaw to shoulder, from collarbone to hip, dip of the neck to navel, hip to thigh, 
She noted every shift in my breath ever raised, how, how and when the goosebumps spread. She dragged her nail across my breasts and my body rolled towards her. There was nothing I could do to stop it. I tried not to blink. Her brutal hands, the pain glowing, the heat rising, trying to keep still. The awareness again of blood rushing, breath quickening, pulsing, expanding, contracting, wet. Everything she conjured in me, rushing here. There's nothing else I could do. I surrendered myself to her. She brushed her hand across my torso as if wiping a window clean. The deepest breath, a sigh. Show me more, she said. The line she had traced caught fire and I followed the path of the hottest flame, raised like a scar. I pressed my finger against it, trying to discern an edge, finding it with my fingernails. I pressed, and with a sensation like stumbling in your sleep, my finger slipped under the skin. There was an opening. I felt queasy, then curious. What would I be without this skin? It didn't matter. I wanted her to have what she was asking for. I wanted more. Slowly, I pushed my finger further in, splitting warp and weft a tear, offering little resistance. I tore open the seam from elbow to shoulder. Our eyes met, giddy. She wanted more. I slipped my arm out of its sleeve. Light flooded the room, sun on sea, a glister. Keep going, she said. I pushed my whole hand under the skin of my breasts and peeled my torso clean. It didn't hurt. It was a relief. There was enough room for me. I worked faster and faster, tearing off long, wide strips, tossing them to the floor, the other arm, my legs, face, and hair. The spaces between my toes were tricky, as were the backs of my ears, but every inch came off. I showed myself to her, sparkling. But it didn't feel like enough. I wanted to give her more. But no touch, no breath, no kiss, no closeness would be close enough. That insufficient wish, I want to be inside you. I wanted to merge. I searched my body, my hands playing in the light and waves, sun on the horizon, stars rising. There was movement inside, a tide. I sunk my hands down into me and raised them up in offering. Drink of me, salt and sweet. Her lips parted in my palms, the way her throat moved. She drank and drank, and it wasn't just water she was drinking. She was swallowing my heart. Uh, that's pages 168 to 170. That is, to me, one of the most beautiful, sexiest, most incredible sex scenes. And I absolutely loved it. And it made me love them even more, the characters, just knowing Aww. how much they gave to each other. So let's go from what I loved and liked to a character that I really did not like at all. Uh, we're going to move on to Van. Uh, I loathed this character. So for people who haven't read the book, Van is Echo's agent. And there's a scene and I really feel like Van represents, and if you were trying to do this, Saskia, you did a great job. He represents the stereotypical flashy LA man that I really do not like, uh, flashy with little substance. And I'm not saying that every man in LA is like that. I'm just saying that there are some and it puts me off. But I really struggled with the scene when they went out to dinner because up until this point, we're seeing Echo really exploring new territory, really coming into where I feel like she's always belonged with Orly in that world. And then when they're out for this meal, she's got a steak. 
she really wants to eat it all. She wants to gobble it up. But she's very conscious of the fact that Van is going to comment on the fact that she needs to watch her weight because she's an actress. And he even comments on it several times. But then he lets her have dessert, which makes no sense to me. And I really want to know, it's kind of a, a weird roundabout way of asking why you set your book in L.A. Why there? Why did this book need to be set in L.A.? Because it came from those questions I had at that time there. And then also, I have lived in Europe off and on, mostly on since high school. And I am crazy homesick. It's the environment that I knew, but also the environment that gave rise to these questions. I loved writing him. It was very cathartic. He is the archetypal man. So he's Echo's ex-agent's ex-assistant who's just started his new agency. It's intentionally sort of vague because I feel like that's also part of that kind of character, you know, that they're not really going to give you a lot of information about themselves. They leave you to wonder a lot, which leaves a lot of room for deception. Echo's on one of those dates. She's on one of those dates where she doesn't know if it's a date or if it's him being interested in representing her. And she's treading that really thin line, which is keeping her sort of very disciplined and controlled in the way that she she's working like her, the labor in that scene is her trying to be pleasing. Like she's working so hard at being pleasing. I actually tried to make him like slightly more human because there's this really lovely reading series in Berlin, partly run by the translator Lucy Jones, who has a translation coming out with dialogue books. You read Work in Progress. And I read an early draft of the van scene. And then two men in the audience were so angry at me for writing such an unlikable male character. And I thought, you know what? They were absolutely right. I mean, yeah, I just wanted to write a villain, but there needed to be a reason why Echo trusted him or liked him or wanted to do this, because I don't think she's as calculating as just being like a total shark. I think if you look, there's like two nice things about Van in the book. <laughs> he has a nice car. That's what I'll give him. He was always really nice to her in the office or something like that, or, or they had something that they had in common. I, I don't quite remember, but... Um, it's fine. He's not in the book very much, so that's good. But it's funny, though, because just quickly giving him a little bit more airtime, I feel like at the beginning, you kind of start to villainize Piggy, because he doesn't take to Echo right away in his world with Orly. It's like a mid-relationship book. Piggy is experiencing some mid-relationship jealousy. Jealousy, for sure. Yeah. So I really found, again, just the honesty of your book, the realness. I loved everything that was available, open, there for the reader to experience, to interpret, to enjoy, to take their time. All the sex, the power, the loneliness, the loss and belonging. Everything I felt was just so beautifully interwoven and accessible. And I would love to know... Two things, really. Using your book as a catalyst to what I hope other books will take as inspiration. What do you want to see more in books in terms of this exploration, this idea of power, this idea of sex? And what books did you read maybe growing up or while you were writing this book that approached sex in a really honest, real way like this? I don't know if this is honest, but it sparked something in me. Anne Rice's Sleeping Beauty trilogy, I was super obsessed with Interview with a Vampire. And that whole series, which I think the vampire Lestat, I think there's a scene where he goes down on a menstruating nun. There are sort of moments like this that I remember from the literature I was reading when I was in my early teens, I suppose. And via Anne Rice, I got to her Sleeping Beauty trilogy, which is like a very kinky trilogy. 
And I just remember it exciting me. I mean, in terms of honesty, I'm just really interested in looking at the power dynamics that are and how we're trying to change them, play with them, dismantle power structures. Like I think looking those things sort of dead in the eye is really exciting to me. And then I think a book that I read recently, I read Garth Greenwell's Cleanness. He explicitly stated that, you know, he wanted to do art. I mean, I might be misquoting him, but something like this, that he wanted to do like pure art, but also pure pornography. And his sex scenes are long and wonderful. And I felt like a real writerly kinship with them because they seem to work in the way that I hope that I've achieved in my sex scenes, where the sex scenes don't include anything that's not developing characters or continuing the plot. Like they're very much about movement and like sex as just another part of life. And I think that's where maybe sex books kind of go wrong or books that include sex sometimes go wrong. And it's also kind of why I think porn fails as a filmic genre in a sense Mm. like that statement comes with a ton of caveats but like like the musical you've got your narrative that like stops and then it's like movement on a theme and then the narrative picks up again and I think like in musicals that works okay because you've got something to like snap your fingers to but I think like a sex scene that kind of breaks a story if you're going to a story for narrative that makes it hard you're asking a lot of your reader to stop everything and and read about this like juicy cock and I'm sure it's possible to write that way, but I think you have to do a lot of work to get there effectively. Yeah, and in that instance, you do want it to be hard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I had to. It was right there. Yeah, I. <laughs> that's fine. That'll be my, my one sex joke. I think what you're really saying is that we need a porn film that's musical. I, I think we need a musical film with pornography. That's what I think needs to happen. Is there an Italian Cinderella that's a musical from the 80s that's a porn film? Ah, that's a good question. Yeah, a porn musical. Uh, Before we go on to the last question, I would love to know from Saskia Vogel, how can we all give ourselves the permission we deserve to enjoy a landscape of desire in life? Wow, what a question. Do you want me to solve any other like universal mystery? If you could figure out world peace, world hunger, like just while we're on this podcast episode, that would be great. Um, Let me let me put it this way. If you could give one piece of advice through your worldly knowledge and experience, how would you encourage people to go after their own landscape of desire? Yeah, okay. I think it's to know that what they want to participate in, how they want to give and receive pleasure and love and care is out there. And I think like with the piggy character for a long time, he didn't know that it was out there, but it is out there. I mean, I feel this way very much just about my, like my general life that like some people are very happy with the cards that they are dealt and some people really want to break out or like don't feel quite comfortable. and, And that journey is longer and maybe very difficult and maybe lonely maybe it's just a wild ride yeah sometimes you have to go on that journey I love it and you know what else is out there is Saskia's amazing book Permission if you haven't read it I highly highly recommend that you read it it is phenomenal it is 244 pages of brilliance I would love to have you imagine that your book has been placed on a shelf Great literature frozen in time. And I would love to know which books and authors you would want to sit on your shelf alongside permission. Ooh, Jeanette Winterson. Ricky Ducournay's Natsuke. That was a really big book for me. 
I feel like that book was a book that gave me permission to write about sex in a certain way. And also it's just a sharp, sharp, slim book about desire. I love that book. God, I'd want to put some like good noir on there. Uh, maybe like some Walter Mosley or some Raymond Chandler. That is a great yeah. shelf. I absolutely love it. And what's great is that every time I ask an author that, the authors that I've had the privilege of chatting with, it's it's always different. Even if it has some of the same titles, it's always different. And I love that. <laughs> Saskia, I cannot thank you enough. That was fantastic. I loved chatting with you about your book. Congratulations on all your very well-deserved success. I can't wait to keep permission on my bookshelf for years to come and, and come back to it at different times in my life. And I'm so excited to look forward to anything and everything that you write. And I will definitely be recommending permission and everything else that you put out in this this world because uh, I know it'll be brilliant just like you so thank you so much I really appreciate it well thank you you've like filled my heart with joy <laughs> thank you so much for engaging so deeply in my book thanks for listening to this episode of Shelf Life I'd love for you to tell me what you thought of it either on Twitter or Instagram or by leaving a review on iTunes until next time happy reading <laughs>